we're now going to move into the Minton Burn podcast. So, Eric Alston, come back to the stage, please. And thank you. So, I should say that there are two podcasts being recorded today. This is the first, Minton Burn, um, which is produced out of the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub and hosted by the wonderful Kelsey Nabin, who you just heard from. So, hello and welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host and we are tuning in for our first live episode uh, from the RMIT University Capital Theatre to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Uh, Ellie Rennie and Eric Elston, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Kelsey. <laughs> Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> So for those that don't know or perhaps weren't here this morning, can you give us a brief introduction to each of yourselves, perhaps starting with Ellie, uh, and then we'll go into what on earth is the Validator Commons and how it relates to what's governing Web3. Yes, I'm Ellie Rennie. I'm a professor at RMIT University. I work across the Blockchain Innovation Hub and the Digital Ethnography Research Centre, as well as the ARC Centre for Automated Decision Making in Society. And my work is broadly at the moment focused on the social outcomes of Web3 or blockchain technologies. Prior to that, a lot of my work was around digital inclusion. Also really great to be here, Eric Alston. I'm a scholar in residence in the finance division at the University of Colorado Boulder. Most broadly, I study governance, but within that broad bucket, I in particular focus on the emergence of economic institutions on historical frontiers. Uh, generalizable lessons from constitutional design practice, as well as increasingly digital governance, especially that applied to distributed networks. So Ellie, you're an Australian Research Council Future Fellow with a five-year uh, funded project entitled Cooperation Through Code. Uh, how did you end up uh, becoming kind of one of the core team members or founders of the Validator Commons and what is that? Sure. So when I first decided to start researching in this area. I was interested in the concept of cooperation. Most of us, I think at, back in 2018, when I um, proposed this research, we were talking and thinking about uh, blockchain in terms of trustless technology. And so the, the focus was very much on this idea of trust. But what I was interested in is that really what it is, is a system for coordinating, for scaling human coordination without the need for these um, intermediaries, of course. Well, supposedly, we will get to that. But the, um, the uh, I suppose the hypothesis was that this is not just about trust, it's about, um, if, if it's about cooperation, the things that enable us to cooperate are not necessarily trust. It can be information needs, it can be standards, um, it can be administrative systems and, and, and infrastructures. So I was interested in the extent to which this technology enabled coordination and cooperation in particular, and um, how I suppose these external factors or um, current ways of doing might be conflicting with that or making it hard for that co coordination or cooperation through code to occur. So um, for me, and I'm, I'm going to refer to something Eric has said, actually, which is I think that the um, when we think about the protocol layer, layer one of public blockchains, um, it's the constitutional layer. 
and, and I'm sure he will talk more about that today. But so for me, um, I think we, we really need to understand what is going on at the layer one protocol level and then what kinds of rules and governance is forming on top or around or because of that. And Validator Commons came about because um, I'm involved, as is Eric, in, and you, Kelsey, in fact, <laughs> in a decentralized research network called MetaGov, um, which is run by Joshua Tan, uh, who works out of um, Stanford Civil Society Lab and uh, is doing a PhD at Oxford University. May have wrapped it up now, but was at the time. And um, he was approached by uh, a couple of people from a validator service provider, um, and I'll define that in a moment, who were concerned about governance in at that in, in layer one proof of stake blockchains. And what they were concerned about is that the design of these protocols were flawed in the sense that um, they were supposed to be kind of distributing power to people who own tokens to participate in decision making. But the way that that was done wasn't necessarily working out in reality for a range of reasons which we can get to. But that's how I came to look at and be involved in Validator Commons. I should say that I've also been studying in my own ethnographic research um, the, the experience and uh, role of validators in Ethereum, and in, which is now a proof-of-stake blockchain. It is quite different to the validator service providers that I'll be talking about today, but does, does have some of the same issues. Yeah, so potentially just for the sake of uh, the audience and any listeners to this recording, uh, so validators are essential to the operation of distributed um, computing infrastructure and they help run the consensus mechanism. And so um, in the Bitcoin blockchain, which was the first example of kind of a fully functional peer-to-peer -peer decentralized blockchain, it occurs through a consensus mechanism called proof of work uh, that requires people to run uh, mining hardware, so run kind of a computer thing, server, uh, with software on it. Uh, and expend uh, electricity uh, to participate in that process. And then a bunch of blockchains, uh, including Ethereum, uh, the second largest uh, by market cap, have transitioned to this idea of proof of stake. So instead of running the uh, electricity hardware thing, um, you put up uh, capital in the native cryptocurrency, so you stake it, you lock up that capital to participate. Yes, but with many other large blockchain ecosystems such as the Cosmos ecosystem, um, the requirements to participate in securing the blockchain as a validator are quite high. So although it's possible to run an Ethereum node and be a validator from home, literally with just a little Nook um, piece of hardware in your cupboard um, and 32 Ethereum as your stake, with other blockchains, it's, it's a much higher entry requirement. And that entry requirement can be, say, the number of tokens that need to be staked for you to be in the validator set that then is rewarded for good behavior for securing the blockchain in the form of cryptocurrency. Or um, it, it might be that the um, actual hardware that 
is required is um, expensive and requires a lot of expertise to run. So how those particular blockchains, let's let's take the Cosmos ecosystem as an example, uh, how they how they have designed themselves to work is that say I am a token holder of Atom for Cosmos Hub, and there are many different Cosmos chains, um, Agoric, um, Juno, many, many of them. Um, the, if you're a token holder, you can delegate your tokens to what's called a validator service provider who will then stake them and run that, and, and you can participate in securing the blockchain. Your tokens are effectively locked. But with that process, um, and, and it, 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 you can, through these validator service providers, maintain custody, although it's locked away until you choose to unstake it. But in the process, unless you exercise your vote, your vote, your vote defaults to that validator service provider. So we end up with a situation where these companies, some of which have many, many millions of dollars um, on the line, um, and we don't necessarily know where all the other capital is coming from, they can have significant uh, voting power. And I think even more problematically, which was one of the things identified um, to myself and Josh at the very beginning, was that there are also, of course, um, means of, of staking and participating in proof of stake through custodial um, validators. So, for instance, Coinbase, the exchange, uh, will, will allow you to stake, uh, say, your Atom tokens through them or whatever tokens it might be for that particular blockchain. Uh, but you actually can't, could not exercise your vote because you don't have custody over it. It's, you're not connected to a wallet that enables you to participate in decision-making. So what is happening in that case that we have found is that those services, those exchanges will not vote at all. Um, whether they should or not, it's actually really hard to say. And the, but, but that can also mean that you, you might not reach quorum because they might hold a significant share of the tokens because a lot of people might just choose to go through them because that's the easiest way to do it. So we end up with a kind of issue there around participation and attention. But there were many, many issues that were kind of raised to us at the commencement of the validator commons, which we wanted to try to work through. Um, it could be things such as how do validator service providers stay on top of all the governance decisions that are, could be occurring across, say, if they're validating for 10 different proof-of-stake blockchains? Um, how do we, as delegators, know how they're going to vote? Um, what kinds of kind of pre-voting deliberation is occurring that might help those validators make a decision on behalf of their delegators about which way to vote. Um, and then a, a whole series of, of more technical issues around what kinds of dashboards do we need? What types of, um, uh, yeah, just even, I would say transparency around who, where the stake that these validators, validators are holding has come from. For instance, if it's come from a particular venture capitalist, yeah. um, should there be some kind of um, 
a proof or attestation or whatever that enables us to know that that's the case. And the whole point of this technology, of course, is that these things should be legible and transparent and we should be able to keep track of all this, but it's a very, very new and emergent system. So the work of the validator commons is largely to try and address these problems that validators themselves identified. So we started a process which um, occurred over many, many months where we would meet regularly with a, with a group, a smaller group, I think there were kind of five that showed up regularly of these large validator service providers weekly to work through what they thought good governance is, mm. um, what kinds of issues they saw in, in the ecosystems and um, what it would mean for them to come together and try and address this problem, which, it, which I think is kind of where these issues around cooperation versus collusion come in. Yeah, so fascinating. So you have this very technical system, very infrastructure heavy, very capital intensive, and then you end up with five people on a regular call to discuss <laughs> governance around all these kind of um, yeah, meta questions and day-to-day -day operations for the... Broadcast. We have grown to 50 or something now, though, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's around the operations, it's much, much kind of broader public infrastructure. So, Eric, you attended one of the initial, uh, actual, what was an in-person meeting at the outset of the Validated Commons. What was your impression walking in, I guess, from your perspective and, and maybe some of those lenses around the kind of, um, you know, the governing the constitutional rules, the technical upgrades of these systems, but through, you know, a room of people that had to sit around and have, you know, these kinds of conversations. So a couple initial impressions surrounded, one, the high degree of specialization and ultimately capital intensity of these processes, meaning that one smaller group was exercising decisions that had consequences for a much larger group of network users. And that harkens back to a point I was making earlier about specialization leading to concentrations of influence. The second was just the recognition from that derives directly from heterogeneity of interests within groups means it's also emergent within human social ordering when an organization scales to a sufficient size or complexity that subgroups begin to formalize their definition internally. And so for me, it was certainly inevitable that if you have an organization that hits that scale or complexity of interactional processes, which it is governing or facilitating, that you are likely to see different subgroups emerge as a function of heterogeneity of interest within the system. The third recognition was it was correct to call what they were doing a political party, and that was the nomenclature used when they were originally organizing the validator commons, but it's not as if political parties are beloved, especially in cryptocurrency communities that are trying to exit to some extent from the political infrastructures that currently govern them. And so I think the term political party is laden, but it's nonetheless apt to describe what was occurring. And so the point I made at this initial commons was it's wrong to characterize your subgroup formation within a complex organization as we represent everyone within this group. You're coordinating a set of sufficiently shared interests to where I think it's important to recognize that and recognize the interests that are motivating you to do so, but to claim that your decisions are representative of a larger group is ignoring those who are not present at the table 
often for very voluntary reasons. And the example I used there was OPEC to its members is a very powerful and effective coordination body. But those subject to oil prices that OPEC defines to a great extent consider it a collusive body that's extracting rents from market consumers of oil the world round. And so every subgroup pursuing its own interests is likely to be viewed at least on some margins as collusive with respect to the set of interests that they're not representing when they're organizing within the larger organization. Yeah, okay. So um, that event was the launch of the Validator Commons and it took place in Austin, Texas at the time of uh, consensus this year in May, I believe. And the, um, it, it was an interesting room because in that room we had these founding members of the Validator Commons and some, some other validators who were interested to hear and join. Then there were a bunch of core developers and people from Foundate, blockchain foundations. So I'm talking the, the founders of the Cosmos ecosystem, of Juno, of SifChain, of, of many other, um, mostly Cosmos um, blockchain ecosystems there. And they were very much taken aback by this initiative. Um, I don't think they're opposed to it, but they, they had an expression of, of shock on their face and in their voices, I think you'll remember. And my, um, I suppose, throwaway line at the time was that these, these core developers, these extremely smart people, had designed these blockchain systems to be resilient in conditions of adversity and under attack, but they did not foresee conditions of cooperation which is what was occurring in that room at that, on that day. And so what we, what we had, and, and, and I think um, we, we have a situation where they have designed a system and they have designed it so that there are, these validator service providers are essential for the running of, of the blockchains and the sec, making them secure. And I think it's important to point out that these validator service providers have a, a, an actual, real, and this came out through these discussions, they have a real interest in the longevity and long-term survival of these blockchains in a way that someone who's just delegating might not. So you can say this is not democratic because, you know, it's you know, not everybody is voting all the time or whatever, or there are these kind of intermediaries in the middle or whatever it might be, or parties but in fact, um, they, they bring the expertise, they bring the attention to um, the proposals and, and the maintenance, and they were wanting to get it right. And what was really fascinating is they, that they, they said overtly that um, the, the thing about blockchains is that governance is not just cooperative, it's competitive. And that ultimately it is the blockchains that have the best governance that will win. And in the case of validator service providers, hopefully it's those that believe in good governance and that are willing to participate in processes to uphold it that will attract the most stake and the most dele delegators coming to them and therefore profit. So the economic incentives are still very much part of this and that's by intention. That's, that, that is absolutely how the system was designed. 
So um, what we end up with a situation, and, and, and so for, for Teddy and others, um, Dan Huang and, and many others in the room and who are involved in these conversations, the, um, the, the kind of insight that I was drawing from this as an ethnographer, they see blockchains as these sovereigns and they see governance as competitive and they think that it's important for good governance to be able to, or those who are going to uphold good governance to be able to distinguish themselves. And that, you could say, we, we could just have an industry association that does that, but they wanted to make room for those that don't see it that way or do it that way. And, and, and for me, I kind of came, very much came around to this idea of the validator commons describing itself as a political party, because then as a delegator, you can make a choice. You can say, I'm going to delegate to the people who do it this way, or I'm going to delegate to the people who just want to give me NFT incentives or the, you know, the highest APY on my stake or whatever it might be. So we, it's, it's a competitive system. And I'm super interested to hear Eric's thoughts around that, um, the idea of, of, of competition, and, and particularly that the, a defining characteristic of these systems is that it is easy to exit. It's not easy to exit the country, the nation that you live in, as a sovereign state, but it is easy to exit um, a blockchain and to sell your tokens and to go and participate in one that you think is now doing it better. I'm sure a lot of people left EOS, for instance. And I, I, know, I know a company here in Australia that left EOS and went to Ethereum for very good reasons. Um, so, Eric, how do you think about this? Yeah, so I alluded to the fact that political parties, probably rightly in many contexts, get a bad name. And so using that, that term is itself laden. But I do think the emergent nature of specialized representation of subgroup interests within complex organizations does is a testament to the efficiencies of that. But that runs directly up against contexts where members don't have the ability to exit at low cost. How easy would it be for any one of you to become a United States citizen? Not impossible, but very costly and probably a many, many years long process involving hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of your own dollars just to make that exit possible. That means groups that represent you within a system that has very high exit costs can extract a lot of rents as a result of that. And to me, that's a direct reason why political parties get a bad name. They wield massive influence within the systems that they govern partially because of their, their representative influence. So what's different about these networks? Ellie's already emphasized to me the two canonical components that make them so different and I think restrain the incentives of this sort of political party, if you want to call it that, of the validator comments. Exit costs are relatively low and there are many competing organizations out there that offer similar opportunities for those who are interested in participating in these systems. That is a direct check on the subversive governance incentives of those who control the equivalent of political parties in these systems, if they extract so many rents, eventually their product itself will be weakened relative to their competitors. 
So to me, the first component is low exit cost and the ability of other networks to attract similar-minded users. That's a direct check on these subversive incentives that can otherwise proliferate in political systems as we understand them. The second component is the levels of transparency that blockchain processes tend to have baked into them by design and tend to be demanded by network participants and users. So it's not just technical features, it is an underlying ethos of we want to understand the processes that are influencing our costly stake in these systems. To me, those two things together check in important ways the incentives of a group that I think is correctly likened to a political party, in part because these networks are distributed. They constrain the sovereign to an important extent, and that means they are kind of like democratic orders in really interesting ways, including the way in which delegated proof of stake is actually a closer represent, representation to modern political orders than actually direct voting. And so for me, low exit costs, high transparency of network processes means you don't get the special interest capture and the problems of dark money that give many political parties a bad name in this day and age. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts actually, Kelsey, as well. I know you've done some work on Lido. So with Ethereum, um, it's not on-chain governance. So the um, there's not the kind of same voting process. It's more akin to what Filecoin has described um, it's a, it's a it's a proposal process, and in in Ethereum and other systems, core developers and foundations do have a lot of power. They don't um, have any checks on that power necessarily, um, other than the nodes themselves. So, as someone running an Ethereum node, I can decide not to implement an upgrade. That's kind of the extent of my power, other than if I decide to get involved in, say, the Ethereum Magicians Council or whatever it is. And, um, and, but, you know, I don't necessarily have the uh, status or networks. Or t uh, I absolutely don't have the technical expertise to participate in that. So um, instead, as a home staker, a node runner, I, I personally choose to participate in something called DAP node, which is a, a, a user interface that enables me to run an Ethereum node without needing to do command line and the rest of it. But, you know, then it, that kind of raises questions and DAP node itself has had, had to face this. Well, how decentralized are we? And <laughs> how do we do that kind of auditing function? And so even in, I think, Ethereum, there, there are these kind of multiple, like they've tried to say we are the most decentralized proof of stake blockchain and designed for that. And I think very successfully, but we need to be paying attention to all of these other entities within the system and their role. And of course, um, Lido, which I just mentioned, which Kelsey has done more work on through block science than I have, but where the um, you, you can be someone who has Ethereum but doesn't necessarily have 32 or wants to run a machine, so you can do what's called liquid staking and your Ethereum is pooled with other Ethereums, which is then kind of put into a smart contract and staked on your behalf. So it still has a similar system. And I know Lido went through a similar kind of crisis around 
a vote around should Lido be capped at 30% of all states' Ethereum, and they rejected that um, for good and bad reasons. So, I mean, I, I actually want to throw this back to our wonderful host and say, <laughs> I mean, do you see parallels in Ethereum or issues around stake, proof of stake there? Yeah, there's, uh, there's some interesting and kind of similar themes to what you've discussed. So the CTO of Lido actually reached out uh, after reading like a blog post on resilience and vulnerabilities that I had done. And, you know, as part of that desire to want to do, you know, good governance or, you know, have a, a functional adaptive system. And then also as part of the desire to want to signal that, I guess, as well. Um, and we ended up doing a, a sort of short, sharp, uh, kind of mapping exercise and vulnerabilities analysis of Lido DAO. And so it's an incredibly uh, sophisticated uh, thing, uh, one, of a, one of a kind thing. Uh, they're one of the first movers in this idea of liquid staking. And so they have uh, this first mover advantage across a whole number of ecosystems, which is where that concern arises of, you know, if everyone is liquid staking via Lido DAO, on Cosmos, Ethereum, Polkadot, Solana, you know, and any other kind of major blockchain ecosystems that emerge, you know, there's this real kind of potential fragility there as well. Uh, but part of what we found in, in the kind of attitudes of um, people we spoke to and what we observed was, you know, uh, again, this idea about, um, you know, what I just called sort of self-infrastructuring, uh, like it's, it's not decentralized because there's, you know, all this secondary, you know, economic sophistication and technical sophistication, uh, but it's more decentralized than the alternative. And so, you know, they could self-limit because they're scared of themselves having, you know, too much influence and power in other blockchain ecosystems. But, you know, Coinbase isn't going to self-limit by taking you know, the value that people have sitting on their Coinbase accounts and then using that for potential influence across other ecosystems anyway. So in the case of LIDO, for, from, from their perspective within that system, it was about being more decentralized than the other, you know, sort of mainstream centralized alternatives. Yeah, and I think this, this these questions around decentralization, you know, it's almost a kind of meme that blockchain is good because it's decentralized and if it's not decentralized it's bad and for me i feel like the my experience in both um ethereum but also the validator commons is that what's occurring is far more complex than that and we need to be a bit wary of of that discourse that around oh but it's all centralized because in fact expertise is really important and um, attention is important. I'll give the example of a Juno proposal. I'll give two examples actually from Juno, which were quite, um, which happened over, dur during this, this time period I'm talking about this year, where um, in, in one case, a vote went through, which someone had just put in the wrong wallet address in the proposal and I think something maybe it was like 30 million dollars or something was said maybe it was not that much but a lot of money was sent to a, um, a, a, a wallet that no one controlled 
and was lost essentially. And so there was a, a kind of moment where everyone said, ah, oh, maybe we should have checked that. Um, and, you know, the validators kind of passed that. And then another one where um, a whale, is, as in someone with a lot of tokens, was airdropped another token in the Cosmos ecosystem. And this was Juno. And um, the way that it occurred, they had it, it looked like they had deliberately tried to get more of the airdrop by having multiple wallets, right? Uh, whether they did or not, I won't comment. And it was the kind of first instance of, of a blockchain deciding to confiscate funds from a particular um, individual. Like this, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a kind of similar to the DAO hack in that respect, but they were taking it off um, an individual. So highly controversial. And these are, these are kind of important, even though one is terribly controversial and, and challenging for people to make a call on that, um, versus one which is really banal and administrative and mundane, both of them need processes around how do you actually arrive at the outcome that you want in this situation. So some of the things that the Validator Commons will talk about is like maybe we should be doing the auditing. Why should the auditing have to be core teams? Like let's just let's decentralize auditing and get that right. Um, or even who's putting forward proposals um, and and that maybe they need to be taking more of a role in the development of blockchains themselves and determining their future, which of course core teams might not be so happy about. Thank you for those comments. Uh, I don't know if we have microphone runners, but I wanted to make sure we open the floor just for one, maybe two questions if we have time. Is there anyone with questions? There's one uh, here in the middle that rose their hand first. And, and while they're, they're running, uh, Ellie, to Eric's comment about these sort of having some of the features of more kind of or potentially sort of democratic or political um, entities. You, I've heard you describe these as not necessarily democratic, but something else. And I wonder if you can put more thought to the... Um, sure. Well, I'll, I, yeah. And, and I mean, this comes to one of the things that we're working on at the moment. Um, I, I'm thinking of them partly in terms of monetary democracy, um, John Keane's work around that, which we already have in society, a kind of world where there are various agencies that take on these kind of roles of decision-making and, and keeping powers in check and all the rest of it. So that might be one way of thinking about it. One thing that we're doing, which definitely fits that category, is where when we get enough validators, at the moment we're only really piloting it because we don't have we've only got 50 members or something, I think it's about 150 individuals, a kind of sortition process where we randomly select people from validators who work within validator companies and um, create like validated juries so that not everybody has to look at every proposal all the time. And those juries might assess both sides of it. Well, this is what we've been trialing come up with a recommendation that the others can choose to adopt or reject. We're not quite sure what happens when they, if they always get rejected, what that means for our membership. But just the idea that it, it takes away, I think, some of the um, challenges of doing governance, but ensuring that there is still a process there and that they know that that due diligence has been done over a proposal. 
to the audience. Uh, well, thank, <clears throat> thanks for excellent discussion. So, um, well, about delegated validation, basically. Um, so I guess people usually participate in, in pools and, and validated delegation for, for lower risk, I guess. Um, you basically delegate the technical stuff to people who know what they're doing. Um, I guess there is not enough incentive at the moment to run your own, um, even even for actually large holders as well, uh, because that carry uh, that carries basically larger risk of, of slashing, basically, or making mistakes, yeah. uh, which obviously um, is diluted by by participating in pools where basically the risk is divided um, um, across members. So I, I wonder, I wonder if, if the problem with, um, with, with, with delegated validation is, is motivation for individual validate, like basically running your own validators. Um, and that's, that's basically currently lacking or not. The second question is that why do we think that delegated validation is necessarily bad-ish? Um, especially that it is actually one of the types of democracy that, that we are actually currently um, basically delegating our decision making, basically even choice of government, basically through 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 other um, like not everyone votes on everything as 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 we already know that that doesn't work anyway. Um, so I mean, delegated validation might not necessarily be bad. Uh, probably the it comes back again to the motivation with. Basically, if the validator um, doesn't act in your incentive, would you change the validator or not? Probably not in most cases. So yeah, yeah. I think you've identified a lot of really interesting things there. Um, I I don't necessarily think it's bad for some of the reasons. I think that delegation delegation is is good if you know what you're delegating to, but we don't necessarily at the moment, which is partly what this is there to resolve. Um, and if there can be ways to make it easy for those who do want to participate in government governance but don't want to take on the risk, the infrastructure risk, including slashing, um, then we need to be able to do better for those people. Um, absolutely, kind of agree with your comments. I think the, um, the next area I really want to start delving into is probably around where Ethereum is thinking and headed around light clients, the idea that you could run a node off your mobile phone and what that means. I mean, one thing that's always really, as someone who used to study digital inclusion, the fact that my validators, you know, might be taking up a terabyte of data a month, thank God for the MBN, hey? Um, <laughs> what if you don't have uh, unlimited broadband? Um, uh, or, you know, you, you, you don't kind of have a constant electricity. So how, how decentralised can we get? And is that a good thing? I don't have the answer to that yet, but I'm super interested in that conversation too. I'd just, oh, just briefly add that bad relative to what? Mm. And so the reason we tend to have delegated decision-making in political processes is in addition to specialisation reasons, polling everyone on every single political affair is inefficient. Mm. 
It would be incredibly costly of everyone's time. And many people don't care about the vast majority of political decisions being wrought over them. They care about a subset, which hopefully their delegated representative represents them sufficiently on. But it's true in private sector contexts as well, which is there are benefits associated with risks, risk diversification in, in investment, meaning I delegate my retirement accounts on which my family depends in my future to many, many managers of investments because I couldn't possibly efficiently manage and oversee and participate in the governance processes of all of those different enterprises that a tiny slice of my value is allocated to. And so for me, it's bad relative, is it bad relative to competing alternatives is the right question as opposed to, is this a good or bad thing within this system? So that actually raises interesting questions about delegation occurring in DAOs, which happens in some, in the case of the Lido interviews we did, but that's something to revisit. Uh, to the other gentleman with the microphone. Uh, yes, I'm just curious. Um, we've got uh, concerns about centralization of power with validators, um, which, uh, but then there's another thing that some folks are beginning to question, which is um, validators using Amazon Web Services or other cloud hosting things, and that there yeah. may be centralization risk there. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as to, first as a hurdle of the centralization around staking and stuff, but then the platforms that are used and then what decentralized cloud infrastructure might look like. Um, and are we ready to have that? And whose domain does that kind of fall in? Is it the validators themselves to sort that out? Or how how do we support that? I, I don't really know the question, but that's kind of- I, I know where you're getting, getting at. Um, actually, Chris Remus from Chainflow, one of the validators that we've been working with from the start, wrote a fascinating piece around decentralization. And one of the risks that he identified was that you have, you can have situations where a large number of validator service providers are using the same data centers, for instance. So that at that very, you know, practical hardware level, what happens if that goes down or if someone decides to um, create some kind of attack on that system somehow? So he was he was saying we we also need to be ensuring and showing in you know via all these incredible tools that we now have because of Web three that that that's not occurring and. Um, giving people a choice, not just about who they're delegating to, but who that person or company they're delegating to is choosing to use for their infrastructure, et cetera. Yeah, I, I've also seen some uh, folks suggesting that when it comes to developer conferences, perhaps we shouldn't all centralize around developer conferences because you've got a whole concentration about folks in, in one area. Um, sorry, just sneak in an extra cream and then I'll hand over the mic, that but do you have like any thoughts on that? That was like the time when everyone was in Osaka for DevCon and there was a hurricane warning and like everyone in Ethereum panicked that, you know, all the Ethereum core developers <laughs> would be wiped out by a hurricane. <laughs> uh, for the sake of time only, I will wrap it up here. So thank you to our panelists, our guests on Mint and Burn, Ellie Rennie and Eric Elston. And thank you for tuning in for this live recorded episode. Um, I'll add uh, links to where you can find out more about the Validator Commons, anything that's been written about it. I know there's a blog post already and more on the way, I'm sure, um, as well as Medigov on rmitblockchain.io. Thank you.